You're listening to the Regent College Podcast. Hello, my name is Octavio Fernandez y Mustajo. And I'm Claire Perini. Welcome back to the Regent Podcast. Today we had uh, yet another conversation with Dr. Phil Long. Yet another who one. Who is a professor of Old Testament here at Regent. And um, we were talking about the Bible as history. And can what do we understand as historical? What what about miracles? What about the supernatural? Mm-hmm. What about the things that historians have thought we don't have evidence for? Mm-hmm. How do we understand that? The question is, is the Bible a history book? Can we take it as a history book? Is it more than that? Is it less than that? Like, what about, like what you were saying, we don't have archaeological evidence all over the place for the Bible. Is that like... A, th- a serious a thing mm. we, we mm. need to think about. Mm-hmm. So if you don't know Phil, he's a professor here at Regent. He's written a book called The Art of Biblical History. And so lots of the ideas we were talking about came out of that. Um, and he's retiring. So he this might be our last podcast with him. Who knows? Maybe. But we hope you enjoy our conversation. Phil Long, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. You're such a professional at podcasting <laughs> these <laughs> yes. days. You're so oh, just, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, we're going to talk about the Bible as history and... We'll see where our conversation goes. Okay. Um, let's start with the kind of big question. Is the Bible a history book? Uh, okay. Is the Bible a history book? Well, I think the the, the short answer to that, um, but I don't want to content myself with a short answer, is not exactly, or perhaps better, yes and no. Um, it's not a history textbook simply. It's something larger than that. Um, but it is interested in history, mm-hmm. um, and it makes a number of historical truth claims. So in that sense, history is a big part of the Bible, um, but there are other parts that need to be taken into consideration. Mm. So was that ambiguous enough? That's good. You, yes and no. So then mm. how do we figure out which parts are historical and which parts aren't? Uh, particularly, yeah, as we're reading, but then into also that's going to influence our interpretation of them, whether or not right. potentially. So, yeah. which, how do we de- determine which parts convey history, yeah. Yeah. which parts don't? Uh-huh. Well, I, th- I think that question um, pushes us toward the necessity of good interpretation, and good interpretation must always consider context, the immediate context, the larger context, the flow of a narrative that leads up to the particular text that we're looking at. Um, and it, good interpretation also means that we need to consider the genre of what we're reading. Mm. So if something is um, a story of it, it is Jotham's fable, for example, which is actually called a fable, then mm. you wouldn't want to pull um, historical information from the fable itself, although you can learn a good bit about Jotham um, and so forth. So um, in terms of the larger context... You can't simply look at a small story about something that Elijah or Elisha did that may seem wondrous to our eyes, as it did to theirs, Mm -hmm. and say, well, that can't be history, because that's kind of almost, that's a miracle, uh, without looking at the larger context. And the larger context is talking about the history of the uh, kings of Israel and Judah Mm -hmm. and the interweaving of the ministries of Elijah and Elisha with these other kings. So the truth claim of the larger context is a historiographical truth claim. It's talking about things that actually happened. Mm -hmm. So um, if we don't have a a signal 
that we've moved aside from that historiographic impulse, then I would say, well, yeah, we believe in a miracle-working God, and if miracles are described in this context of essentially his, his, historical truth claims, then we should we should read them within that context. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a little different if we don't have that context, and you read um, a story that could be taken historically, perhaps, or could be taken... Um, as um, more parabolic. If we don't have a context, it's hard to make that mm, determination. Mm, mm-hmm. you, and you're saying that if we don't have a signal that helps us, what would be some signals that would help us in our reading? Yeah. Um, you know, we talked about when we're looking at Psalms, we talked about things that are indented or there are, you know, right. are there certain things or is it that just it kind of it's just obvious if you're reading the whole story that it should yeah. be obvious? It's easier for me to answer that question if I, if I go to the New Testament where um, you've got, Jesus teaching, for example, and sometimes it will explicitly say, then Jesus told this parable. Mm-hmm. You know, a man yeah. is going oh, down yeah. from Jericho to, mm-hmm. uh, from jo- Jerusalem to Jericho. Uh, real historical places, but he's saying this is a parable. Yeah. He's not necessarily telling a true story of someone, something that happened. And does, even yeah. with Jesus, sometimes he'll, he'll begin simply by saying, there was a certain man. And that also, even though you don't have the word parable. That's kind of a trigger to think, mm-hmm. okay, he, there was a certain man. He's probably beginning to talk, mm-hmm. to give us a parable. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you said that, is it harder to do that in the, in the Old Testament then? Is it harder for us to determine that? I think, are there, I think there are many, I think there are many cases where it's a bit harder to know for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a good idea to um, allow ourselves to be unsure in some cases. Um, right. For example, if you take uh, the book of Jonah, for instance. Um, We do know that Jonah existed historically. He was a prophet, I believe, during the reign of Jeroboam II. Mm. Uh, We read about him in 2 Kings, and it talks about his ministry involving establishing the boundaries of Israel. So here's a historical individual. Then when we come to the book of Jonah, um, it's it's a little outside the gallery of the of the sweep. I mean, um, of of redemptive history in a sense. Mm-hmm. It's not uh, beyond imagining that someone may have taken up this historical individual and and and, and written a parable about him um, in order to make a point uh, to to is to Israel that was um, too enclosed, not outward looking. Um, hated the Assyrians, and so forth. Now, am I saying that, it, that Jonah's a parable? No, I'm not, because I think there are other evidence that would suggest that a historical reading of uh, the prophet Jonah is appropriate. Um, and I'm, I'm far from saying that just because uh, um, some fabulous elements appear in a story, that that necessarily makes the story not historical. Uh-huh. I'm just saying that if someone takes this side or that side on the book of Jonah, I'm willing to discuss that and to live with that and to say, okay, well, yeah, there are some tough places and mm. tough cases. But if someone says, oh, I think Jesus never existed and um. it's, he's a parable, and you know, I think, okay, well, we need to do some historical research here. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, you, okay. my, my little Christian boy was about to cry, like, Jonah, isn't that true? <laughs> Did you just say that? <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, and I would never say that. I would never say that. And and I would also not say that Jesus' parables are not true. But I know oh, what your son is asking. Yeah, yeah, He's yeah. asking, did it truly happen 
mm. in history. Okay, people are going to give you, I think it's important that Jesus and his resurrection is historical, right? That That's very Absolutely. important. Yeah. And, okay, people say, like, I'll give you that. I think that's really important. But the rest, you know, in the Old Testament, you know, Moses and the burning bush and, and Elijah and Abraham and Adam, people say it's not really important for those things to really be historical because, mm-hmm. you know, what we want is the myth, right? The the things we learn from it, the, the, all, mm-hmm. all the all the teachings we have. And so that's the important part. So people say, we shouldn't be arguing really about the historicity of, of their stories because eh, let's let's discuss Jesus. That, that'll that give you. What would yeah. you say? Because I saw, I saw well, your face cringing. Yeah. No, what, yeah. <laughs> what I would say is that um, what is important is what the text seems to be claiming. So if the text is making a historical truth mm-hmm. claim, um, it's important that that hold true historically. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, um, in Isaiah, I think it says, uh, um, "Look, look to Abraham, um, the rock from which your faith was carved." I'm paraphrasing mm-hmm. here. It doesn't say, "Look back to Abraham, that character that your faith has retrojected and created in the past." No, it's oh, saying, okay. "Look back to uh-huh. Abraham," because. What happened with Abraham is part of what gives you faith now. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a point that John Golden Gay makes in, in an essay uh, that he writes. Um, and, and so um, I think that one, one way to go at this question, when we get to you know, hoary antiquity and it's a little harder to know, um, are these actual historical uh, individuals? Mm-hmm. Are these eponymous ancestors? that have kind of been retrojected to the past. Um, I think what, one way to approach it is to say, where, where can we cross-reference biblical truth claims? Um, and uh, you, for example, in the period of the divided monarchy, we mm-hmm. can cross-reference those truth claims with um, some archaeological evidence, with Assyrian documentation and such, and we discover that the kings and their names and their order of reign and such lines up very well with mm-hmm. what can be checked. So um, as we take that on board, then as we move to an earlier period, and these earlier kings are continuous with or contiguous with these later kings, we think, well, these kings certainly are real, and we can cross-reference mm-hmm. it archaeologically. So the burden of proof is, I would say, increasingly on those who, moving to earlier periods, would suggest that they're legendary or not real because um, we're taking our cues from what we can check and then moving backward, moving earlier in time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm pretty, I'm pretty affirmative mm-hmm. of the... Uh, of the impression I get in terms of the truth claims of Scripture about the patriarchs, about Moses, and so forth. And so on. and a lot of the reasons for dis- that critical scholars in some cases have dismissed um, the historicity of, uh, of, of Moses, or at least the Moses that we read about in the Bible mm-hmm. or of the patriarchs, are simply not very strong reasons mm-hmm. in the light of current knowledge. Yeah. You, you're mentioning uh, a phrase, at least... You mentioned it at least three times. You mentioned truth claim. So in I read your book called The Art of Biblical History. Thank you for the plug. Yes, yes thank you. Yes, you, you should all read it. Yes, each of you should both buy it and read yeah. it. 
<laughs> so it's in your book it says uh that the truth value and truth claim of the scriptures are essentially distinct mm-hmm. so what is the difference between a truth claim and a truth value okay yeah those are they're important terms they're and they're kind of technical terms so let me let me put it this way i'll 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 describe it and then put labels on it. Um, let's assume that um, you're from Sweden. Your heritage is from Sweden, let's say. And mm. so you've, you occasionally um, are able to make a, we'll say it, bring it up to somewhat modern times and say you're able to do a Skype call or even FaceTime with your uh, granny mm-hmm. back in Sweden who doesn't know English very well. And you don't know Swedish very well at all because mm. you're second generation in North America. Okay, so um, you know your granny to be a person of integrity who loves you deeply, who would do anything for you, who would never mislead you, mm. who would never lie to you. And so you embrace the truth value of whatever she says to you on this call, but you don't know her language well and you know, and she doesn't know English well. So there's some problems of communication, and maybe there's even some technological difficulties. The uh, Wi-Fi goes out now and again. And so there's, you're struggling to grasp what it is she's saying. You believe in the truth value mm-hmm. of what she says, but actually determining the truth claim, what she's trying to get across to you, mm-hmm. that's another story. And if you're sitting there with a couple of siblings... Uh, you may be actually discussing amongst it, what is she saying, you know? And uh, they'll say, "Well, I think she's saying that." No, I don't think so. And she's sitting there, like, kind of bemused. Um, but that's what we do in biblical interpretation. Um, there are some biblical scholars who will will disagree regarding the truth value of Scripture. Some people will say, yeah, "That's what that's what he seems to that's what Paul seems to be saying." I don't buy it. I don't believe him. Mm-hmm. They do not embrace the truth value of the text. Others will say, yeah, whatever the Bible teaches, I'm going to embrace that as true, mm-hmm. but I'm not sure what this text is about. What do you think? And the other scholar will say, well, I think it's about this. And say, well, no, but what about this thing in the mm-hmm. text? And so you debate amongst yourselves truth claim. Mm-hmm. So keeping those two issues separate is important because mm-hmm. sometimes you have folk who will fuse or conflate truth claim and truth value. Mm-hmm. Now, the truth, truth claim is their particular, their, their take on the truth claims. That's their interpretation of the text. So if they confl- conflate truth claim and truth value, the minute I disagree with their interpretation of a text, they say, well, you, don't, you just don't believe the Bible. If you believe the Bible, you would read it my way. Well, no, we may both believe the Bible, but mm-hmm. it's not always easy to get you know get to grips with what it's actually saying. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, fellow believers get together and can have hefty discussions about what we see or believe the text to be saying. So our interpretations sometimes differ. Mm-hmm. Now, don't get me wrong; I'm not just saying any interpretation is just as good as any other. Mm-hmm. I think we're we're pushing toward determining some kind of discovering some kind of stable meaning in that text. I don't think you know I'm not so postmodern that I think texts can't communicate 
Um, but we have to train ourselves to hear them well. Mm. And it's an ongoing process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because in, in your example is uh, your truth value is based on who your grandma is and yes. what you know of your grandma, right? right. So, so that's, right. that's where the truth value comes out of, right? Yes, yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, and I'll add to that, you know, I, I believe in the truth value and reliability of my grandma because I've come to know her, mm-hmm. I know about her, I know other people who know her, um, and I know she loves me and I love her. That doesn't mean I always understand her, okay? Uh-huh. Um, so it makes, it makes a big difference if someone says, I don't believe granny exists. Uh-huh. Okay, if you don't believe granny exists, then you're not going to be hearing very well what granny is trying to say because you're going to say, I'm hearing some sounds, but since granny doesn't exist, these are just some kind of phenomena. Yeah, Yeah. I don't, yeah, those. Taking, I love, so many things happening in my head. So some uh, scholars think that uh, taking into account the truth value of the text, meaning that that whatever the Bible says, I believe it, it makes you way too biased Mm -hmm. in your interpretation to read what the truth claim is. Mm -hmm. So the best way of approaching the Bible is just leave your theology in the door, at the door, before you you come and try to understand what the the, uh, text is saying. So what I'm thinking is, is about your example is, it's it's our granny. We're listening to the granny in Skype, and you think, yeah, I kind of know what what he's saying because I know her. Somebody would say, I'm an expert in in uh, in Swedish, mm-hmm. so so I know what she's saying, mm-hmm. and she he can tell you this is what she's saying, and you would say like, no, she's not, like because mm-hmm. I know my grandma. I know, I know mm-hmm. we're talking about food. I know mm-hmm. what she would say about food, and, mm-hmm. and what you just said, of course, it didn't come out of her. So you you have you have like a. You stand in a different place because you know your grandma, even if you're not an expert or the the most uh, expert in fin in what Swedish Swedish yeah. Uh, you still have an uh, insight on what she said that the expert in Swedish does not. Yeah, if you're you if know what you're I'm trying to say? yeah, I, I do, I do. It's a complex question mm. in the way you ask it too, because um, there is a sense you use the phrase you know leave your theology at the door. There is a sense that. Um, when we approach a biblical text, even though we're always operating within a framework of theological belief mm. and our understanding of uh, life, the universe, and everything, the existence of God, uh, our experience of God, you know, that all is always is there. But we, we need to be careful to allow the text, the biblical text, to speak fresh, something mm. fresh into our lives. So if we think, um, I already know everything that my grandma could possibly say, uh-huh. then you're not, a, you know, maybe your grandma has been to a culinary class <laughs> and she comes up with something that you yeah. didn't expect. Mm. You know, she, she said, mentions tofu and you think, uh-huh. what? Tofu? Yeah. Um, my, my grandma never <laughs> ever yeah. tofu, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, she would never, do, you know, so the expert says, no, that Swedish word means tofu. And you say, that's impossible. That's outside my frame of reference. That's not in accord with my theology of grandma. Uh-huh. Okay, well, th- so it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tricky question you Ooh. pose because it is important that you know your grandma and you have experience with your grandma. But that doesn't mean that your knowledge of your grandma is uh, full, finished, and complete. And mm-hmm. that can be the danger when we think, 
I know the theology. Uh-huh. I've got the theology, yeah. and it will weigh in and limit what the text can say. Yeah. No, the theology grows out of the text. Uh-huh. So, to the extent, if if we if a a proper reading by a Swedish expert who's not uh, a grandma hater, yeah. you know, who's not mm. doesn't have an axe to grind. If that sweet Swedish reader says, no, that word does mean tofu, yeah. we need to listen to that mm-hmm. and say, okay, all right, I need to take that on board. So what have I not known about my grandma till now? Uh-huh. Yeah. And that way, the Bible, uh, which is our source, this is the Bible is what God has given us, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and our theology is what we make of it, mm-hmm. what we construct and how we try to summarize and such, but... Um, we're open then to the Bible speaking something fresh into our uh-huh. lives, um, and it makes us better listeners. It's it's very easy if you think you know everything Grandma's got to say, uh-huh. not to listen very well to what she's saying now on yeah. this particular occasion. Mm. It's a co- beautiful conversation, but like both yeah. have to have like like the expert. And you who know grandma and right. have space, both have to have space for for and, discussion and for new yeah. information and for. And since you know, since we're here at Regent College and we're training people, may I suggest that the best um, scenario possible is those who do know grandma and have developed some expertise, uh-huh. who are working hard to learn Swedish. So that they can actually recognize tofu when they read yeah. when she utters tofu, you know. Um, so, so that's the best combination. And then when they come together in community and they're listening to Grandma together mm. and they're bringing some competencies um, that enable them to cross this large cultural and linguistic mm. barrier mm. and even chronological, because it's Grandma, she's a different generation mm-hmm. than the grandchild. Yeah. You know, as we can, if we can bridge back across and really kind of indwell her space and her time and her language, then we're going to hear her better. And as we come together corporately, then we can iron sharpens iron and we can help mm-hmm. each other to understand her better. And that's, you know, we're using a lot of analogies here, but that's what I think is the, the best in, in hearing the voice of God in Scripture. Um, and by that, I don't mean that I, I, I believe that Scripture is God's Word to us. I don't think it just on occasion becomes God's Word to us. But it mm. is a living Word, and so we do need to mm. hear it. I don't oh. know what just happened there, okay. but that was beautiful. We ended up with tofu, but I loved it. <laughs> that was just great. Good, it's a, it's a, it is soup. a really helpful um, yeah. analogy, actually. And yeah. 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 I mean, all the analogies yeah. fail at some point, but I feel like it hasn't failed By yet. By the way, I'm not Swedish, <laughs> yeah. but anyway. <laughs> How do you feel about tofu? Yeah, I, yeah, well, it can be cooked very nicely. Yeah, that's yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of the, and most of the Bible is uh, just an example of how God cares for humanity, how God relates with humanity, how God has not left human, humanity on, on his own. It's not just God is watching from afar. He's always manifesting himself in the scriptures, right? Mm-hmm. He's always talking to people. He's, there's angels that are sent to, uh, to people. They're like, and there, there's people being raised from the dead. The 
people being taken when people I mean Elijah being taken to heaven without mm. dying mm-hmm. and then there's there's a, a pillar of fire just like guiding the people and then there's mm. there's uh, some like supernatural events uh, like that taking place in the scriptures mm-hmm. so so I think I think that's part of the, what the Bible is a relationship between men and God right but then that is the issue for most of historians right so it's, mm. if you're saying uh, people uh, things crazy as 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 kids resurrecting from the dead and 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 uh, and floods and like that's may, maybe the the biggest issue some historians have right that, okay you, you, that cannot be i mean once you start talking about that you just uh kind of shut yourself in the leg because that cannot be his history yeah. right so yeah. uh nice yeah. stories but history are you kidding yeah. me that's that is not so yeah i, I think there's a very unconscious sometimes intrusion of a person's preconceived notions or their set of background beliefs or their stance regarding naturalism, supernaturalism um, that kicks in when someone says, well, we know that the resurrection of Jesus is cannot be historical mm. because that is so improbable. In fact, it's impossible. Mm. People do not rise from the dead, period. Um, well, the, the testimony of Scripture is, on this occasion, yes, this was an exceptional life, and um, the ancients would not have really had this two-story universe of the you know, natural law yeah. that is intruded upon occasionally, if at all, by the supernatural, yeah. the ancients, not and not just Israel, but um, pretty much ancient peoples, saw God or the gods, their false gods, and these were deceptive beliefs on their on in those cases. But but the true God is intimately involved in the world that He has mm-hmm. made. It, he is not inactive. We're not deists. We don't think He just got it started and then backed mm-hmm. off. Now God's Hand, he doesn't show his hand all the time. There is a certain regularity to human experience. Um, but that does not mean that, that God in heaven thinks, okay, um, there are these natural laws, that an ordered universe that I set up, but I guess I'm just going to have to be a lawbreaker to pull this one off. Mm. Um, even the Hebrew Bible doesn't use a word exactly miracle. It uses wonders. These are wonders. This mm. is something wonderful that is mind-boggling to us. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure I remember the question you asked at this point, but it's just um, I think we I think we need to be careful to when we when we hear people pronounce on what can or can I'm kind of remembering yeah. the question what can or can't happen mm. to say in whose universe. Because what what has given you this particular um, understanding of what's real? Mm. Because the Bible kind of blows your mind and mm. expands your. In other words, I did. I was. I was not born knowing what can and cannot happen. Right. Um, I nice learned point. what can and cannot happen myself from Scripture from God's work in my own life, from God's work in other people's lives, from the testimony of people who witnessed things and, 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 and were willing to die um, mm. b- because they believed what they saw, what they experienced. 
Um, and so there's a, there are a lot of reasons, and it's a constellation of reasons, mm. to come to a faith that, number one, God exists, number two, God loves the world he has made, and number three, that he's doing something about the way we've broken this, and he's bringing redemption, and he has climactically um, expressed that love in Jesus of Nazareth. So mm. um, when somebody says Jesus couldn't have been raised because people don't rise from the dead— mm-hmm. I would I would just go back and say, I, I recognize that people don't normally rise from mm-hmm. the dead, but in the universe that I believe is the true universe, you can't say what God can or mm-hmm. can't do. Mm-hmm. And in fact, we have testimony that on this occasion and a few other times, Lazarus and some other instances in the Old Testament, God has brought back people to life. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesus is the first fruits of that glorified body that will not mm. die. Lazarus would have gone mm. on and lived some more years and then died. Again. Yeah. yeah. Can, I, can I ask, so you were talking about um, ancient peoples and how they thought about the world. Yeah. Would someone rising from the dead have been mind-boggling to them and kind of, or would it, you know, in, or is because they've got this bigger understanding of the natural and supernatural sort of interrelating with, with one another better than, than we do as postmodern people, we've separated those things. How would they, how would they have responded to something like that? Would they have responded with the same skepticism as we do about the miraculous? Uh, it's hard to say because yeah. you'd, you'd you'd need to know on a case by case basis. Right. But I, but I don't think there there would have been as large a, a contingent of secularists mm-hmm. who had sort of naturalism as their fundamental certainty. Right. I think they would have been astonished mm. because, again, they weren't seeing it happen very often, and their eyes would have been very wide open. And they are it's and described they as wonders, as you yeah, say. And yeah, and they would have said, wow, did you hear what happened? You know, mm. um, I don't think they would have, yeah, I don't mm. think they would have had a hardline uh, and overconfident naturalism at work in them that just says, oh, no, that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. I know it didn't happen because those things don't happen. That's mm-hmm. a circular argument. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, well, it did. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know it can happen because it did. Yeah. No, it. I, I know it yeah. didn't happen because it can't. But, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. right. <laughs> totally. Yeah. 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 And uh, I, I think there's a, a huge conversation about uh, when did the historical account start in the Bible? Because I, I know I uh, heard some some preachers or scholars say that I think we have archaeological evidence for the existence of David, and then from David on, not from David backwards, prior, yeah. prior right? So, yeah. but the, the, most of the arguments are based on on the archaeological evidence they found, right? Yeah. So they yeah. say, okay, from David, like prior is. Uh, Nice stories, but most likely not true. And then from David, I think the writers of the Bible got serious and said, like, okay, let's start really writing historical accounts. And then from then on, they said, like, I don't know, different people, different times. Then they started uh, writing historical accounts. Yeah. And I I mean, again, a lot depends on what we, how we conceptualize what counts as a historical account or Mm -hmm. historiography. Um, in in my book, and as a you know kind of an artist at times in the past, I used to paint portraits and such. I came to the conclusion that that one way, one good way of describing history writing or historiography is that it's a kind of a verbal um, representational art form. 
in the same way that a portrait is a visual mm-hmm. representational art form. Okay, so there's, um, and that and that in a sense opens up a lot of questions in terms of how we how we view a portrait, for example, to mm-hmm. stick with that analogy. If this is a portrait by a competent portrait artist, and I know that the the reason for the portrait is to capture something, certainly the the appearance, and certainly of the face, and perhaps imply something of the character and interests of that um, historical subject. Um, then I'm gonna then I'm gonna be pretty confident that that competent artist is showing me a true likeness of that person. Mm-hmm. But I might be less certain about the props and such, because those can be more artificially arranged to capture some truths about that individual. Mm. Um, So as we think about historiography, um, the the reality on the ground is always more complex than any historical reportage of something. Can ever, yeah. Yeah, Then you always have to select, simplify choose an angle of view mm-hmm. and uh, and then you represent you paint if you will the likeness and uh, and so there there can be some uncertainties as well should I take that absolutely literally mm. that part or is mm. it you know mm. but it does seem with someone like Abraham Isaac Jacob um, as their uh, Joseph Moses you know these these signal figures in the in the sweep of redemptive history and such, um, the writers do seem to have regarded them as real individuals. Mm. Um, and so I think um, the, the notion that history begins when we can first check it, yeah. um, I, I think we need to um, question that. And uh, you bring up King David. That's a very interesting one because in, in, uh, there are a couple of books written in 92, I think 1992, thereabouts, that made the point or argued the thesis that because David had not been attested extra-biblically um, in archaeological discoveries, then David probably never existed. Mm-hmm. Well, the irony of that was a year later and then the year after that, 93-94, um, the now-famous Tel Dan inscription was discovered in which you have... Um, even though there was attempts initially to explain it in some other way, those attempts became increasingly strained. Mm-hmm. And as the, dust, uh, as the dust settled, I think um, most scholars now agree, yes, this text mentions the king of the house of David. Okay, And it was probably an account, an inscription within uh, 50 to 90 years of David's own lifetime. Mm-hmm. Okay, so... It appears now that David did, in mm-hmm. fact, exist. Now, does that prove that the Bible's portrayal of David is, in every respect, correct? No, it doesn't. You kind of have to trust the artist. Yeah, you ha- That's where other larger order issues kick in. Mm. Um, in fact, I was, I was at a conference one time when a couple of guys were discussing the Tel Dan inscription, mm. and uh, an older scholar came in, uh, known not to be particularly appreciative of the historicity of the Bible, and they were discussing the Tel Dan inscription. He overheard that, and his comment was, um, well, the inscription may prove that a David exists, but it doesn't prove that everything in the Bible is true. Okay, well, no, it doesn't (laughs) prove that everything in the Bible is true, but that was not the point. If the point was, we we, we shouldn't take David as historical because there's no extra-biblical evidence, uh. 
Well, now there is. Mm. So now can we take him as historical? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I guess we have to. But it doesn't prove that the portrait is any good. Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, mm. Mm. so in some cases you kind of can't win. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but we, you got to be careful about the verificationist principle. Uh-huh. Don't, don't assume. Um, if, if, a t- if a text checks out where you can verify bits and pieces of it, unless you have a strong reason not to trust that testimony, mm. if, you, yeah, if you believe in the character of the witness and, you, and it checks out every time you can check it out, um, then the logical thing, the reasonable thing would be to say, yeah, well, I, I can't prove that. I can't verify it. Mm. Um, but I don't need to verify because I happen to trust this testimony. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Phil, you were talking about this whole idea of um, a portrait being likeness and your understanding mm-hmm. of art and the biblical story. Um, tell us a little bit how, you, how you've come to see those two things interacting, art and the biblical story and history and those things. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting to me the way um, these two kind of parts of my life have kind of come together and helped me understand both. Um, when I was first studying uh, the text of First and Second Samuel, um, I was noticing all these beautiful, powerful literary devices and the careful crafting and the, if you will, the painterly um, uh, sophistication of the biblical mm-hmm. writer. And I, I was asking myself, but I thought this was history. And now I'm hearing, you know, I'm seeing all this artistry, but I thought it was history. Mm-hmm. And it was then that I had this notion, wait a minute, I used to paint portraits. And they were art. They were 100% art mm. in the service of history, mm. in the service of capturing the reference. And so then I began to sort of tease out this analogy, and you know it's only an analogy, and it may, but it may illustrate some truth. I began to think about how I was trained as an artist mm-hmm. um, to capture a good likeness. And so one thing my art uh, professor would say is, um, you know, when you're when you're looking at your subject before you put your brush on the canvas, look at your subject, kind of squint your eyes, and try to see the big relationships. Try to try to filter out some of the detail mm. so you see the big shapes, the big tonal values, because you're not going to want to paint all that detail. That's not the way we go through life. We see things, but we're not inspecting every detail. Mm. And so the more effective painting is one that is more suggestive. So you get the big contours, mm. you capture the relationships, you capture the tonality, and then you you provide a few suggestive details, and then the human mind is brilliant at filling in all the rest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so as I went back and was reading the Bible, then I think, okay, it's, it's interesting that we're told that Eli was losing his eyesight, and he was overweight. And I thought, okay, so why those two details? We could have yeah. been told that he had long hair or that he didn't mm-hmm. have hair. You know, we could have been told all kinds of things. But in the course of the story, you discover... He's losing. He's lost his spiritual vision. He's grown. He's grown dim-sighted spiritually, and he's also been adding weight to himself and to his sons. Not simply literally, although they'd been abusing the sacrifices, so that was happening. But metaphorically, um, they were called upon to honor God, which in Hebrew is kind of give weight to God. Instead, they've been giving weight to themselves. Mm. So I thought, okay, those are two telling details mm. that in a sense, enable us to understand Eli, mm-hmm. fill in some other details. 
So that was one thing that helped. Another was um, my art teacher would say, when you're painting, you need to stand back, get away from the painting, walk across the room, and then look at it from a distance because you'll see things better from a distance sometimes. You'll see what's wrong with it, right with it. And many times when people are talking about historiography, they will say, um, well, eyewitness testimony is really what counts. Once, once some years have passed, well, we can't really trust that. Well, we don't do that nowadays. I mean, often the distance of time mm. enables us to perceive the historical significance better than mm. if we're up close mm. and personal. So mm. when there's a living president or, a, some, or you know, a prime minister who's still in office, sometimes you'll hear the comment, well, it'll be really interesting to see how history treats this yeah. particular person. Well, why wait for history? We're eyewitnesses. Why don't mm. we go ahead and write it? Uh-huh. Well, because we have to wait yeah, to see what time. flows from it. Mm. Uh-huh. So in terms of biblical scholarship, sometimes people will say, well, this text can't be trusted because it's from three centuries later. Well, yeah, I mean, I suppose some things could go wrong, but that doesn't necessarily mean mm-hmm. that it can't be trusted. Mm-hmm. You know, so proximity in time. Mm-hmm. So time after time, um, I just be- as I began thinking about visual representation mm-hmm. and then mapping that onto verbal representation, it, it all made sense because mm-hmm. the Bible is it has a it has a point of view sees it under a certain light, selects certain details, um, uh, allows the human mind to fill in the rest, by all means needs to get the relationships correct Mm -hmm. so that we actually see Jesus, for example, or David, for example, not some distorted Mm Picasso-like construct Mm -hmm. of David. And it's amazing how honest the biblical texts are. I mean, David was was highly touted in the history of Israel but he but they showed him as uh, warts and all as mm-hmm. Brooke Halpern puts it mm-hmm. uh, Brooke Halpern describes David as the first fully four-dimensionally human character yeah. Yeah. in human history mm-hmm. so deadly honest about this person who was highly admired uh-huh. and so I think we can trust these portraits mm-hmm. um, I think the they're painted by a master artist. Mm-hmm. I think God, and, and through His instruments, um, called them His brushes. Mm. Is 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 the master painter? He's the John Singer Sergeant of the celestial sphere. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think when He paints a picture, yeah, He wants to, wants us to understand that this is about a real person. But we also need to say, look very closely. How did He paint that? Mm. Because the lesson is often embedded mm. in the in the mm-hmm. rendering itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is why I love the Bible, why I keep going back to the Bible. Yeah, Phil, we um, celebrated yesterday that you're – celebrated that you're retiring. I know everyone was so <laughs> happy to see me going. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But you are going to spend a little bit more time, hopefully, on this painting side of life. Yeah, so yeah. Um, I, would, I would normally be sadder to be retiring. Mm. I mean, I, I've loved what I've done for 38 years, um, and I've loved being at Regent for the last 19 um, and I would be quite happy to continue. Mm-hmm. But there are other things that God has really been putting on my heart to do. Um, I have a, a bunch of grandkids. Mm. I want to be an active grandparent, and uh, they're worth it. Mm. You know, yes. talk about some great disciples. They're worth it. Not that they're my disciples, but mm. I'd like to be their friend, their grandpa, mm. and be part of that. And uh, also, I'd like to kind of come full, full circle and, and mm. um, allow that other side of me, this art side of me, to... 
uh, find more time mm-hmm. than it's mm-hmm. found. So I hope to to spend some years um, enjoying that. And of course, my my wife Polly, who is always at my side, always you know we've lived life together, we've ministered together. Um, I am uh, looking forward to spending more time with her mm. and not always be prepping for the next day mm-hmm. in the evening. Mm. You know, she's been very patient, mm. um, but it's mm. time to to spend more time with her mm. too. So we're excited about retiring, though we will um, certainly miss the daily, weekly contact mm. with people mm. like you. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's and kind of what other, I was hoping our other for. Was waiting, yeah. when was that going to come? Yeah, in? you know. But um, yeah. I've I've got friends and and. Um, we're all we're all pulled together. We're all tied together, even across miles and mm. distance and stuff, mm. because we're all members of the family of God. Mm-hmm. So we're 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 not moving very far away, and we're hoping to to show our face now and again, just mm-hmm. often enough to shock people yep, here perfect. at Regent. Yeah, uh, yeah spend some right. time in the in the library. Yeah. Well, Phil, bless you and Polly yes. as you go, and thanks very much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having. It's me. been an honor having you here. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to the Regent College podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. To discover more about Regent College, its upcoming events, conferences, courses, and more content like this, visit regent.net. That's R-G-N-T dot net.